was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined by the cast and creative team of the new movie, The Sixth Reel. Premiering at Outfest on August 19th and streaming through the 22nd, The Sixth Reel is a new movie about the world of film collectors and what happens when they encounter a legendary lost movie, London After Midnight. I will be talking with the film's co-writer, co-director, and star, Charles Bush, the co-director and co-writer, Carl Andrus, and actor, Doug Plout. Also in the film are Julie Halston, Margaret Cho, Andre DeShields, Tim Daly, and more. So pause the episode now and get your tickets for this fabulous movie at the link in the episode description. I have seen it, and trust me, you won't want to miss it. You're back? Great. Now, on with the show. Well, so I'd love to start by asking you, since no one has seen the movie yet, what is The Sixth Reel about, and where can we see it? Go ahead, Carl. Oh, okay. Well, um, The Sixth Reel is a new comedy film written by Charles Bush and Carl Andrus. That's me. And that fell in the next window. And we co-directed it. It's a feature comedy that we shot during COVID. And uh, we had a great time with a wonderful cast. And it's going to premiere at Outfest Los Angeles 2021 on August 19th in Los Angeles at the Directors Guild. And then from the 20th through the 22nd, it will stream uh, via Outfest as well. So that's the the top line. (laughs) And how did you all get the idea for this movie? Well, um, you know, Carl and I, um, we we were involved in a movie uh, about 12 years ago called um, A Very Serious Person. And, And we've wanted to make another movie ever since. And it's very difficult sometimes just to have all the circumstances align and and make it happen. And uh, at one point, I finally said to Carl, I said, "We need to come up with an idea of a of something that we that's contemporary." Because often the ideas we have are you know, period set in the '60s or or the '30s or 1900s. Yeah, it would require a lot of technical acumen and, you know, higher budget and things like that. And if you just want to make a movie, it's better to keep a contemporary. And uh, so we were thinking, what could this be? Well, at one point, Carl thought that we could uh, keep the cost down if we thought of it almost more like a filmed play of just Julie Julie Hoss and I in my apartment. Well, that's true, because I I, I was, you know, as uh, me along with the rest of the world are huge fans of the Charles Bush and Julie Halston's comic magic, their energy together on stage. And a number of years ago, uh, we had done Charles's play, The Tribute Artist, with Primary Stages, and they were just comedy gold in that play. And so I thought, well, what if we try to capture that energy that we had in the tribute artist of you two playing two contemporary people in New York City, you know, scheming and carrying on. And so then from there, we yeah. built a story. And then we'd also had an idea, um, 
years ago when, when we when we wrote this other movie, Very Serious Person, originally, originally, yeah, you were going to do a movie about about um, this odd world of of classic film collectors and dealers because I I'm familiar I have friends in that world and. Right, and so we, but, but our scenario is going to take us all over the world. We were going to, oh, they're going to be looking for these lost artifacts, you know, in Timbuktu and whatnot. And we decided that that was you know, a little expensive, <laughs> a little overreaching. Yes, yeah, so that was about twelve years ago. So yeah. This is, so this time around, you know, we were more sensible, and uh, but we kind of took parts of parts of ideas from that original idea from twelve years ago, and. A little bit of the tribute artist as far as the relationship of right character in mind and, and then came up with the you know added the, a new a new piece and the idea was that we were going to film it in new york city and everybody's apartments and we were going to you know it was going to keep it really sort of simple but then covid hit so once we finished with uh the run of uh, our play the confession of lily dare well we had a lot of time we we, we closed lily dare on march 5th 2020 and then March 12th, <laughs> the world shut down. So we found ourselves with a lot of time on our hands. So there was Charles in New York City and I'm at my place in Connecticut. So we started Skyping and we just started uh, imagining the screenplay um, for hours a day for, you know, several months before we had, a, and then we had a script. And what did you find were either the challenges of the bet or the benefits of being on Skype rather than in the same room? Internet outages, outages were very frustrating. <laughs> well, actually, we did. But it was good. Well done because it's not as distracting if the two of us were actually sitting in my apartment. We you know, get up and you know get something to eat. And, right. You know. We really did stay focused for you know if we sat there for four or five hours at a time. Yeah. Yeah, your ass doesn't leave the seat, you know. So Until you, you know, and then what we would find is that we get really, really far, and then we'd go away, and then we'd come back the next day and say, like, okay, I thought of this roadblock, and Charles, I thought of this roadblock, and then we'd have to go back, you know, take two steps forward, one step back, three steps yeah. forward, one step back, to finally make sure we're crossing all of our T's and dotting our I's when you're working on a story that's like a caper and has a lot of details, and you don't want people, you know, thinking puzzle pieces are missing. Yeah, the, the plot took quite a while. Writing the dialogue was was fair, fairly quick, but just you know, getting this caper, yeah. So it's really plausible, uh, and yet you know, it's also a, a slightly stylized world where yeah, really yeah, like we were like like impersonate other people in in the scheme. So there's it's not total naturalism. Right. And so, but even within that realm, like what, what wouldn't, what wouldn't, you know, strain those, those uh, bits of, of credulity. Um, but that, but that was the fun, like really puzzling through. That was really the fun of, of making it. What were some of the ideas that you had before the sixth reel that you didn't end up making into full scripts? Well, well, one, there's one idea well, originally, I think that 12 years ago, when we were using that milieu, I think I was going to be some uh, play a female character. Right. And, and I believe I had been, uh, um, oh, this is so interesting because you end up using, it's, it's just interesting in the writing process how a certain idea comes back, but in a different form. Um, I think that idea was that I had, I had been um, this woman who was a, a very involved in the world of, of classic film 
memorabilia. You're gonna have a you're gonna have a memorabilia shop. I was sent to prison, and I came out of prison and wanted revenge on the uh, the people who did me wrong and set me up. That's right. Um, so there was that element, but and then I hadn't really thought about this. But then when we revived the idea, um, twelve years later, there's a character who's really never seen in in this in our current film who had been. Uh, sent to jail for film piracy film piracy yeah uh, and part of the plot revolves around him even though he's he's dead before the movie starts you know so you know you just it's just kind of interesting how how discarded ideas pop up again become a thread an element that informs the new story or simplifies it yeah because in that original idea you were going to have a memorabilia shop and there was going to be all of this we didn't want to have that location we thought oh that's too hard difficult of a set to build because now we're in covid oh, how will that happen you know so how is this going to how is this going to be um so that was you know and that's all really started because uh we'd want to make a movie of this play that we had done years ago called the divine sister and charles had a complete screenplay written for that but it's a it's a very uh it's a it's a bigger budget movie than what this project was meant to be so we sort of had to say okay if we're not going to do the divine sister yet what's something we could do on a lower budget at you know at this point in time and and, this um, we started you know figuring out this idea and then we didn't even know if we were going to get a chance to make it because we had no idea in march if things would be filming at any point in 2020. Uh, i think we actually the way we're skipping ahead is the fact that um, when when you know I, I was so obsessed with this idea of making a movie of the Divine Sister and you know I, I was really living in a total delusion that this movie, which was set in the '60s and had musical numbers and it was about a Catholic school, you needed a whole school of kids. Yeah, that could be made for a low budget. No, you know, I was so desperate that I kept pitching it to people saying oh oh it could be done very cheaply it's ridiculous and then um my friend doug plowd who has is right here right with me here hi uh doug was in the well you were in the talk about ash oh um so i did i've known this producer named uh ash christian who um i've known since 2011 but uh he hired me for uh hurricane bianca from russia with hate which was a really great opportunity for me to, with a lot of the RuPaul's Drag Race crew. And he had known of Charles and Carl and had wanted, you know, so I said, well, I know Charles and Charles should come to the premiere of Hurricane Bianca. And so Charles came to the premiere and they had that, Charles and Carl had a meeting about Divine Sister. Well, well I, I went, I, when I saw the movie, Hurricane Bianca, you know, I was so impressed that it was, I, I knew that it was shot on, a, on an extremely low budget, but it looked great. Well, yeah, and Charles called me up and said, you know, when this, you can't see this movie because I know it's a low budget, but it looks like a million bucks. It looks great. Yeah. Uh, and so, I agreed when I saw the movie. So we, so then Doug introduced us to, well, I went to the premiere and you introduced me to, to um, Ash that night. And then we um, had a meet, Carl and I had a meeting with him. And, uh, and of course he, you know, I was still pitching the Divine Sister and Ash thought about it for about two seconds and said it just couldn't be done you know it's you know it's really that movie needs a couple million dollars at least and um but he wanted to work with us and then carl and i thought okay. that's what we said well let's find an idea that we could do so that is the the missing gap in there but then when we finally had the script you know we sent it to ash and he loved it and he said well let's do it and we were like 
well, how? And he's like, as soon as we can film, let's just start getting it together. So we started, you know, getting the money in place and just figuring out a crew and started to get um, all of that lined up. And because he uh, knew that um, that uh, the COVID issue was going to be a problem, that we couldn't shoot on locations in small apartments, you know, that we would have to build sets. And so that, you know, adjusted the budget, etc. But the idea was that we really wanted to like put people to work, you know, uh, in a safe way uh, during COVID, but SAG started having uh, the protocols that would allow their union members to work. And so we just sort of moved forward with that and started getting all the pieces into place. And it was just kind of magical that during the depths of, of the pandemic last year, we were putting together a, a movie <laughs> to be shot with five sets built uh, you know, in, uh, upstate and a couple of locations and then exteriors in New York. And we were going to shoot in 15 days, very, very quick for a feature. Uh, but we were we were on our road. And then tragically, about a, a was it a month before we started filming, Doug? We learned that um, Ash had died. Um, he had had Six weeks. Was that long? Uh, my memory is two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like compressing everything. And see you had it. you had six weeks. Uh, I had four. <laughs> I had two. Yeah. yeah. So it was very. But we we you know so that was that was a that was a blow. Yeah, it was his was partner, um, Kimberly Rossignol, and uh, his estate encouraged us to yeah. keep going. And so he had had a team growing in place with a producer, our, our line producer was Alex Peace Power. And then she brought on a co-producer she had worked with in the past, Jamie Buckner, and they sort of took over the reins from what Ash had begun. And we continued forward and we put together a cast and a crew and and then started shooting in the, at the end, beginning of October. It was really kind of a miracle and a, and a testament to the group of people that Ash had had you know pulled together from his ranks of people who he'd worked with and introduced us to, um, so that was that was a uh, very bittersweet timing. Yeah, it was interesting the um, shooting on the soundstage in yeah. in the world of in indie film. It's I, I, my experience probably close to to most people in indie film that you shoot uh, in real locations. And then it's it's a, a tax incentive that you you must do two days in a studio, and so I can die, mommy die. Uh, it was all shot in location in L.A., but we had two days, so we shot you know the musical number, and the, uh, at one point I was in a car, so you do rear projection. That's basically what you you do. Maybe one other scene, and that's like it's very serious person. It was the same thing we had. You know, did a hotel room scene and, and and I think one other boardwalk scene that was in an interior. Like we part of the same thing. We just so and that's really almost everybody's experiences who have careers in, in indie film. So it was so it was interesting, particularly when we were interviewing uh, staff people. Yes, a lot of uh, directors of photography. You know, who? What was your experience level of shooting on a set? And you know, quite often they were like. Two days here, two days there. Yeah, and so it was. It was interesting. It was for for so many of us. This was our first experience to shoot almost the entire movie on a soundstage. It felt. I mean, I guess you you get that a lot in television. In television, if but it really did feel like we were. You know, it was like we're in Warner Brothers in you know forties. You know, making a movie. It was 
lot of, all the actors are just upstairs in the dressing rooms and it prevented its own sort of you know uh, you know challenging circumstances because we still had to do we really had to do social distancing a lot of masking and double masking and shields because we were filming actors who were going to be without it constant testing um but you know we had we had our our uh, covid you know uh, crew who was there to make sure everybody was living up to all the uh, the rules and the standards um but we kept about 80 people covid free for about a month and that i think that was a great testament to us all especially to to our two uh covid champions who really really kept us safe so doug what was i'm curious your your experience working um in, during this COVID time on the set? Well, I sort of, I mean, I, in some ways, you know, I sort of loved it much more because I think that there's a level of, especially when you're doing something so quick, it could be sort of like summer camp and there's a level of socialization that me as someone who is exceptionally socially awkward often, fi often finds a diff difficulty in meeting that. So I remember a couple, couple other movies I've done that had short schedules with people coming in from out of town. They, they, 18 hour day would finish and then they would all go off to, you know, have a drink, a party, whatever. And I always sort of felt like a, a Grinch because I would just be like, no, I'm going to go home. But this sort of felt like a nice thing to just sort of be like, we're here to make a movie, which by the way, I, I just think just from a script, when I read the script, I was just knocked out, completely knocked out. And I just thought we're here to make a really good script and then go home well we you know i i love writing for specific people and then carl and i really i mean almost almost entirely in the plays we've done have been the roles have been written for the people and you know we get we get somebody's we get we get them in mind and we just sort of imagine them specifically in, in a role and if it ever happens that somebody can't do it we we, we then tailor it for maybe the next person that well, we have we wanted we really wanted um doug to be in this movie with us and so uh you know we created this character for him that's um like a little bit of yourself and then a little bit of a way not your not you but uh, that's that's what I, I, but that's what i love to do i mean i i, I like taking a person yeah. and, and using elements that i find whimsical or entertaining or interesting compelling about them and then coming up with a character that that's not exactly them. Yeah. But it also, it helps the actor also sort of maintain a ring of truth because it's, you know, it's, it's something that they can see in themselves as well, but add on to adjust things they would never do, you know. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes there are times I have to say in, in the past 40 years where I've, it's, <laughs> I've, I've hit a nerve, you know, I somehow, <laughs> and someone didn't even know. You know, just somehow I, I connected to something in that actor in writing the part that turned out to be true that I, I was just inventing, but I guess I just was sensitive to something they were, they were handing out and, and it made, you know, I think it helped, but it certainly was useful to the actor, but I think it also was a bit disturbing at times. <laughs> Were most of the other roles also written for the specific actors who played them? Because I know some of them haven't done plays or movies with you before, like Andre de Shields or... Uh, we, would get, we would get ideas of like, you know, uh, who is this character? Let's envision 
who we, you know, who might be physically or who, what, whose voice might we hear? And, you know, it wasn't necessarily relegated to people we had worked with, but, you know, like we, we thought of this character that Margaret Cho plays, but she was our, the idea in our head from the beginning. It's like, we had no idea if she would ever do this movie. She's, you know, such a busy artist that we were like, you know, we'd be lucky if she were to do it. But she was the prototype that we had in our head of how we thought, you know, and like you have Margaret Cho's voice in your mind, you know, because of her stand up and her comedy and roles she's played. So you sort of tailor something that's sort of like she could do this. And then you offer it to her. And she said, yes. <laughs> you know? the first one. First one to say the first person outside of our, you know, like our sort of our circle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who said yes? That was that was mark remarkable. Yeah, and then um, I well, said to Carl, well, Patrick Page, we should he'd be perfect. Should be the, the billionaire, and uh, so we wrote that for for him and thrilled he said said yes yeah because sometimes you think of the character but then it's just like such a broad like here's the billionaire like but that's a general so you want to get down and say specific specific who is an interesting type who's fun who would you want to see who would you know and then you sort of we would get a little bit more specific and then we'd be like oh you know who'd be great in that part d hody and then you sort of be like oh d hody what would she what would these you know words sound like coming out of her mouth you know that sort of thing and it just, the, the, the casting does sort of inform and then you just hope they'll say yes. You hope that, you know, it was, what, you know, we've, one of the benefits of, of COVID is that suddenly all of these actors who we wanted to work with weren't busy, you know? <laughs> we have three cast members from the cast of Hades Town, you know, in our movie because they weren't doing eight a week and so they could do a movie. What was the process of Zoom casting like? Well, every our, this movie was offer only. We'd like talked with our casting director, Matthew Glasner, and uh, and you know we, he would give us lists, and we gave him lists, and we'd sort of look through. And we first we had our list of people that we really wanted to go to, and but we weren't going to ask you know Andre De Shields to audition for this movie. It was like he's perfect, yeah, you know. We, like, ask him, and he said yes. <laughs> yeah. There were no auditions. We just yeah these people. We were just um, through thrilled to just to ask them and then they you know either yeah, say you make a list you make lists just in case you don't get the people you you're your first choices you know so you have to like keep the process going but you know you just want to go you know but we we didn't really need to read people or anything so we weren't making people put themselves on tape or anything like that so, and I, you know there are people just like heather mccray who i've known for many years and yeah. just, just adore her and <laughs> admire her so much and and so you know we just thought oh she'd just be so perfect for this part and uh and she was just thrilled i, I mean it was, i think she, it was such a shock to her in the middle of covid to get that call that she was just had an offer to be in a movie and she, she laughed she's like my agent called and said well you have an offer for a film she's like an offer to audition and like, no an offer to play the part and she's like i can't during covid i get an offer how amazing it was that's fun you know that was like the a little, little bit of side joy is being able to be able to give a little brightness in somebody's life. Ooh, you know? Everybody in the film is basically, um, you know, a mature actor. And so um, it was a bit of a leap for a lot of these people to, at the height of, of the pandemic, to risk, you know, just... And travel and coming to a, a place, and living in a hotel, you know, but our producers found us a very nice place for everybody to, to stay and, and they planned all of the travel to and from set with social distancing in mind. So everything took a little bit longer, you know, when we had 
we shot, uh, uh, was a uh, five days a week, but only 10 hours a day and with timing having to be spread out. So it was, it was a very aggressive schedule for the crew. Um, but, but we had to keep them and the cast, you know, safe <clears throat> under all of the guidelines yeah, and still get our movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was obnoxious at times <laughs> to say, and I felt bad for this uh, this fellow, uh, Jason, uh, Jason, who oh, Jason Trail, our, our the COVID Jason. policeman, and <laughs> he is this rather whimsical looking elf like figure. And, and he had a terrible, it was in a terrible position to be constantly policing and say, Oh, uh, you're a little too close together, and you'd snap at him. And uh, you have to collaborate, you know, you have to look at the prop and like, Is it does this look right to you, Charles? What do we think? And that, you know, and so you have to do that, and you'd be like, I need you to get apart and we'd be like all right we know but you know nobody wants to have to be principal all the time you know and he yeah. had to be he had to be the principal but he did his job and I, and i've to say that yeah. last day when i realized that you know it was just how many 80 people involved in this movie that no one got sick and he did his job and i i thanked him so much for um right because every day you're coming to set and you're working and they're taking your temperature and you're waiting for the results and you it, it was only if you didn't have a if you, if you had a problem they would tell you but if you didn't have a problem if you didn't have if your test was negative they didn't tell you so you weren't waiting for the phone to ring but like you're making hoping that everybody would show up you know that nobody was you know, taken out, like, you know, if, if a cast member had been ill or tested positive or a crew member, that would be a big problem, you know, because you'd lose that time, you'd lose that pair of hands, you'd lose that scene. And we were tight, scheduled very tightly. So it was very important that everybody stay uh, negative. Yes, but uh, unless we had a lovely lady who was the, uh, the nurse, and I don't know, it seemed like we were, we were tested so often, I thought I should just take a q-tip and just keep it in my nose just <laughs> just take it out when i'm talking you no know, it's funny how it, you kind of got used to it charles you said you used to look forward to it your I nasal mean, massage yeah it's like a nasal massage <laughs> well, it wasn't we weren't getting that that terrible thing where they stick it into your brain you know it just was a uh, kind of a little little massage the swirl the swirl i look forward to it is the most you know, it's sort of affectionate <laughs> and she was she was a very lovely person yeah. <laughs> so, so shooting was it was a joy it was you know it was it was a it, communication could be very challenging because you're masked you're shielded the whole crew is like that you know and then we're we had these double these four walled sets you know so like you know the crew the cinematographer all inside i'm outside we're all separated we didn't have what they call a video village where all the monitors are next to each other and you're all sort of looking at everything we were all at our separate monitors behind the set and so it was very hard you know for uh for the the director of photography to hear me say cut you know because i i was muffled and and we had to stay that way because if i had to come through the door to talk to charles and tim daly in a scene i couldn't be near them unless i was really you know uh covered up because they were they weren't uncovered so it was just you know sometimes you couldn't hear or you'd have to run that extra distance to make a change or to make a suggestion and so it was it, it was it took a, a lot of retraining of what we're used to you know as far as uh, working when you don't have those restrictions did you find that the cast this is i guess most a question for you doug that the cast bonded quickly on set i mean we didn't get to see a lot of each other outside um outside of outside of shooting but i think it was certainly i mean for me if i can just sort of go off script a little bit from your question for me i had been aware of all these people i had worked with katie before 
Katie Huffman, um, mm -hmm. Tony Award winner Katie Huffman on a reading before, but I had been aware of all these people. So I think a lot of it for me was especially as someone who had, um, you know, a student very much like yourself of theater history and all those things is to sort of say, oh, wow, that's like Dee Hody and Katie Huffman from Will Rogers Follies together. And, you know, you know, Heather McRae and Tim Daly had done a play on Broadway. So it sort of just felt like a really nice thing to just sort of live in this. And one of the things that I love so much about this movie, I just connected with this, is that so much of these relationships in the movie with these characters are about things that you, that happened decades before. So in the past, this happened and this happened. And then to see these actors and to sit and watch Dee Hody and Heather McRae talk, talk about people they've known for decades when they first got to New York and all these things. And, you know, in the script, in the script, but also in real life to, oh, yeah. when that, to, to mirror that. Just sort well, of I mean, yeah, and these actors, all they also all do workshops and readings and things of things that maybe never get produced. But so, you know, the, you just know people for, you know, there's layers upon layers upon layers of connection. And I remember we had this sort of Zoom reading where one of the actors, I think it was uh, Dee Hody, said, well, when we're all in the hotel, are we allowed to go to each other's rooms to hang out? And the answer from the producers was, unfortunately, no, when you're in your room, you got to keep that your clean area. And, you know, you got to eat alone and you got, you know, every, we couldn't even eat together at the studio during lunch. We had to sit at little, it was sort of like a big classroom, um, you know, or everywhere, little desks were set up, you know, six feet apart, you know, and you had to sort of eat their masks, you know, or be in their private dressing room if they had one. So it was, uh, yeah, the, the socialization was challenging. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but yeah, that the history that everyone had here to me was the most special part of- Doug was like the historian. He was like, do you know that so-and-so was in so-and-so with, with such and such, and then they both were on this recording. <laughs> you, you knew it all, Doug. It was even something that, that I learned, because I remember I was, I was catching up with a friend on Zoom who lives in Portugal now, who's a filmmaker. And he, and I was telling you about this movie, and he said, oh, Charles Bush and Heather McRae, he said, I, I, he said, I directed a movie that premiered at the Seattle Film Festival and Margaret Cho's stand-up special premiered there and so did Psych Psycho Beach Party screened there. Huh. So they, all these little things that, you know, I just think it's a testament to those things that I think one of the most extraordinary things about having a cast that where, as Charles put it, everyone is, or most people are over 50, is that the history with all of these, all yeah. of these people, it's just, it's just extraordinary to get to sort of sit and watch. Yeah. You know? and, and, the, and the plot revolves around this group of people who have this long history together. And mm -hmm. yeah, so it, it reverberates in a very lovely way. And where did the movie memorabilia that's used in the film come from? Was it from your own private collections or? Well, well do you mean like the, the costume pieces or do you mean just the things in, the, in the, my apartment? Well, both, both of those things. Well, a mixture of so costume pieces coming from costume collection in New York City. Yeah, we have you know I've had a long relationship with the TDF costume collection and Stephen Cabral, Cabral. wonderful. Um, what's his title? Does it I think he's the. I think he he's the he runs the costume collection. Yeah, he's yeah. in charge. He's he's the big boss, and yeah. you know, he's been just a wonderful help to us in all of our. Any over many years. And because I, I have a friend, David No, 
who's a, a film historian and, and has a great collection of things and, and including um, a jacket worn by Vivian Lee in, in the movie Waterloo Bridge. And he has it, but you know, I, it would have been wrong to, to ask him to lend us that piece because you know, you just never know. It could have gotten lost, gotten lost, or or, or it could be. You never know how there were you know, things can get things go missing, things get misplaced. Yeah, you know, they, want to be responsible for yeah, like there was this very precious object. So yeah, so we just you know uh, found a '40s suit jacket at the costume collection. Sort of as a stand-in. You yeah, know. yeah. But then in my apartment, uh, my character's apartment, we. Uh, took we raided my apartment and Carl's apartment. We all of our, our books and books and knickknacks and stuff. And then the production designers they they you know built on that. You know Charles did a lot of some of the artwork that's hanging on the walls that they framed. And then you know said what about this photograph? Would this be good? Is this the kind of thing that we can add? Because we had to really clutter up the place. And so uh, so it was a mixture of you know where the where they find things. It was it was it was great fun. I just want to interject. There is one thing, one piece of memorabilia that I love more than anything was that there were a couple of them, but uh, Charles has some fans that belonged to Edie Adams. And I always, and they were on the walls of Jimmy's apartment. Well, we worked at Carl and I worked at Edie Adams uh, briefly. And, uh, and she was, um, she, she, I knew her a bit just because she used to come see my yeah. plays right, right from, the, from the beginning. And, uh, and, I, and I just grew up loving Edie Adams and her. Her son, Josh Mills, is a Facebook friend of mine. And so when she, uh, after she died, he sent me a few things that belonged to her, including this fan, I, I guess it's somewhere behind me. Um, and yeah, so we, you know, it, was, it was nice actually having on the set just different things that- Yeah, like little Easter yeah. eggs here and there that are yeah. just a little surprise that actually means something to you know, those of us involved. And the, you know, my character, uh, Jimmy, loves he's a collector and he's just surrounded and lives in this cocoon of of memories and and objects um, from the from the past so I, it was important to give that set this real, real feeling of a, of a life lived in there and that he's not it's a big part of the plot too that he, he has lived in this uh, rent controlled apartment for over 30 years and it had to be this Kind of this cave and, and Dara Wishingrad, our um, production designer, worked very hard to, to make sure that the walls looked like they had been water damaged and, and badly painted over. Feeling plaster. Yeah, it was so funny when we were, we were talking, about, we, you know, the producer said, well, we just have to build Jimmy's apartment. We're going to have to build Gerald's apartment. And Dara was like, okay, yes, I can do it. But the time, the time, you know, I it's it's uh we need it's about the paint and we're like the paint you paint the wall it dries you know we didn't understand the what she was getting at with the layers and the way it takes time for plaster to dry and then be painted one color and then be distressed and then have it painted over so in you know a record amount of time she was trying to recreate 30 years of uh, apartment falling apart <laughs> and she did it amazingly we were so she was so nervous about how it was filming but when we first saw the some dailies about how it was filming we were so thrilled it looked like we we're in somebody's actual apartment actually it really does and there were full you know uh full apartments with bathrooms and and um two two full apartments bathrooms and 
and bedroom one bedroom apartments with ceilings and windows and and drops outside of the windows to to look like the street across you know the the block across the street it was very it's a, it's it's a lot of detail when you're going to film you know when in the theater you can be a little more suggestive depending on your budget but in the film you know it you really got to be pay attention to those details yeah. and the lighting of Closets, it because part of the plot involved the closet I mean it was just there was so detailed yeah. yes yeah, so we had two full sets standing on the two, four, four walled sets and then, and then a few fragment sets as well I mean it was right. so cool it really was just like real old-time filmmaking yeah, it was exciting it was really exciting uh, it'd be hard to go back to to the contemporary world of being an unchulic yeah. I, I loved it yeah it was it was nice just because I've done a couple of films just on location but it, it's nice to have a just a place, not you know, not have to go from place to place. Just have a place where you're going to be every day for you know yeah. a couple of weeks. That was nice. And then we did um, five days. The last five days of the shoot were it, location work on the streets of, of the West Village, and then a few and, and two locations, locations. Yeah, a couple locations. Uh, uh, producer Daryl Roth, who's you know we've had a long relationship with, was incredibly generous and let us we needed we needed a very glamorous board corporate boardroom for a, a key scene in the movie and uh and it was very hard we were looking for for them in other places and they and they just didn't look like the real deal and and daryl has this gorgeous boardroom in her in her offices on, on 57th street that are all windowed just completely with the views of the entire city and she um, gave us permission to go in while her you know and her offices were closed during covid and yeah, that was what made finding a location in new york city difficult in the first place but then you know daryl's generosity allowed it but you know then we saw our people still had to deal with all that building's covid protocol and all that and so it was you know still a reduced crew and 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 whatnot, but you know, the, being able to do that and to film in that beautiful space just saved us in in innumerable ways. So you know, it looks like the real. It, it is the real deal, and it looks like it's the real deal. Yeah. Also, uh, down the, in the in the West Village, we uh, shot a day a day there. It was kind of funny though because cinema it had been closed for quite a while because of the pandemic, and we had to use the marquee and put up. The different old movies that were being shown as like a film you know special film festival fictional film festival in our movie and i think people walking down the street got all well, we were getting ready to, we were lighting and somebody walked in they just oh because the doors are open they open and they're like uh, what, what time is the showing when can i see midnight mary and we're like no oh sorry we're so sorry but you know that we're filming a movie we're not showing a movie they were so disappointed they thought we were back. <laughs> they thought we were back. To go back in time a little bit with each of you, how did your love of old movies start, all three of you? Probably from my grandmother. <laughs> Much like I go over to Charles's now every Sunday. <laughs> I'm your old granny. I, I, I would, my grandmother lived in Westport, Connecticut, and I would go over there every Sunday. And I would see, and, you know, sit on her bed, eat sugar-free candy, and watch, you know, all sorts of old movies and lot, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And also she was a very gregarious woman. I remember she would, she would go, you know, Westport, Connecticut, which has had a lot of old know, movie stars would go, go there and, you know, live there and work well, there. And, she would, Davis and there. she would, you know, she would approach Catherine Hepburn in a restaurant. She would do all this. 
just very gregariously love all those things. And I think I just so gravitated towards her mm. that I sort of, you know, took on that. And then I think the other thing is now having grown up and sort of seeing, you know, Julie Halston made a great point in the van one day was that she said, one of the things that I think is was very common in older movies, which is less common now, is that stories weren't terribly high concept. They were just stories. There, there, could, there could be a concept in the art or the cinematography or something, but there was always a story at the core. And I think now there's a lot of things where it's story is, can, can be in, I think, contemporary film and television sometimes um, sort of secondary. And I think, you know, the story always felt primary, feels primary in the older films. And I, and I think that is something that is so, you know, so wonderful. I think that's some, it's also. I yeah. guess, I guess in a way that's our art movie is, a, has a feeling of, one of the, one of the genres that we were interested in is uh, Carl and I, we love the, um, British Ealing comedies of the early early to mid sixties, uh, caper films, caper films, and with a group of misfits who get joined forces to pull off a, a, a scheme, and and that was the kind of feeling we were starting off with. Although our movie actually has elements of that, but then goes probably to a little at times a little more of a, a wistful, emotional place uh, as well. So movies. Well, Carl, did you, when did you discover your love? I think I was when I was a, a kid. Old movies were really shown on television, and uh, my mother was a fan of musicals. And so, you know, you come home on Sunday after visiting grandparents, and and uh, there would be afternoon movies on on Sundays. And then I just really looked forward to that what would be on on the Sunday afternoon movie. And then we'd get the, the TV guide that came in the newspaper and you could sort of see like what movies were coming uh, along for the week, you know, like, so it was like, is Funny Girl gonna be on finally? Or, you know, is Hello Dolly gonna be on? And I become obsessed with sort of like what was being shown on television, sort of in primetime slots on you know, Thursday night or Friday night. And, uh, and then um, I was sort of came of age right at the age of um, home video where movie, suddenly there were these things called VCRs and you could go to a store and rent the movie of Guys and Dolls, which you could never see unless it was on TV. So that sort of informed my desire. And I remember going to a video store and seeing a new Judy Garland movie called I Could Go On Singing. I was like, what? Like I'd never known about it, except that I saw it, it was like, it seemed like a new release because it was at the video store. I was just very young and couldn't believe it. But then, you know, come to find out like, oh, what it actually is, which led me to reading about the movies, books that describe plots and when they actually came out and then wanting to see them and having lists of movies that I sort of felt like I needed to see or wanted to see and sort of just going off on that adventure. We're three different generations here. And um, before with you, uh, Charles, yeah, uh, it's funny that, that I could go on singing because I, I was friends with the great um, gay film historian um, Vito Russo wrote mm. Cellulite Closet and he was we were both huge Garland fans and, and so we were just waiting for uh, I Could Go On Singing which was Judy Garland's last movie to come out on home video and finally <laughs> it was announced and 
oh my God, every day, <laughs> there was a video store on 18th Street, I guess it was, was that World of Video? I forget, anyway. And um, it seemed like every day I'd run into Vito as we do haunting the store. <laughs> Did it come out today? And it was delayed a few days. And, oh, it was, and finally there it was. But uh, I guess I, you know, it's, it's all sort of similar, but with me and, and classic film, I guess where I really started getting my education was that uh, when um, my mother died when I was uh, seven. And then um, well, I guess at a certain point um, when we had, we had to get a, a, have a live-in housekeeper. And uh, so she was given my room. And then, um, so twin beds were put into my parents' room because my father was never home. He was either at work or um, at night, you know, going through the ranks of parents without partners. And, dating so, uh, uh, so that was my room but my father would come home after you know after a date and it'd be about 11 o'clock and and he um would want to watch tv and he loved he loved um old movies and there was a lot of a uh, lot of old, old movies on uh, the, the late show and movie greats and million dollar movie so i just you know i really you know should have been asleep but i started watching you know uh, Betty Davis and James Cagney movies at at eleven at eleven thirty. Be up from eleven thirty to one and watch. And it was just great for me to have that. Well, have that time with my father for one thing, and and to share those movies with him. And that's really, I guess, where where I got my did all the research for my later career. I, I I've imprinted never, upon you at a very early age. And people ask you know so many of my plays have been rooted into um, classic film genres and. And people ask me, oh, did you have to do a lot of research on mother love melodramas from the 30s for Lily Dare? Uh, so no, I did all my research between the ages of uh, eight and 11. <laughs> it's kind of like you, Charles. I mean, in a certain sense, you know, with your love of, um, of Broadway, you're, you're getting it all now. Yeah. And what was it like for both of you, Charles and Carl, to be splitting up the directing and the writing and also you're both in it and to be collaborating in those three different areas well you know we've been doing this for so long we've been collaborating now for about 25 years and we're so in agreement you know it's it's so rare that we don't see some small detail eye to eye and um i mean it's just really rare and when and when that moment comes i don't know i i i just feel that um, oh, if Carl is so so passionate about some detail that I'm not completely in agreement with, I'll, I'll just think, oh, you know, he's he's so passionate about it, that, you know, just I'll lay off, you know. But but it's usually on sort of minutia because it, it's it's and it's just so rare. I mean, it's I I think that um, I've heard from other people connected to the movie that that they were maybe initially concerned about having two directors. But we're really kind of one person in some ways. <laughs> well, you're, Doug, you're about to say something. Oh else? yeah. Oh no. I mean, I think it's important. One thing that I, I want to say is because Charles, you know, just as an as an actor, is the lead in the movie. So I think to me, what my experience on set was always that you know I would get a note from Charles here or there, but it was nothing that the writer director who was also the star of the film and sort of the eminent Greece would would wouldn't give me anyway. So. In my head, on set, Carl was always the the ultimate authority of what I of where 
when I got a note, it would typically come from him. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, really, like, see, Carl's a director. Mm, yeah. a director in his, in his DNA, you know, and and he's in. I've found the, the director mentality of these these oddballs who who must be directors are is that they they love having thirty people coming up to them wanting answers at the same time, and they like having and having those answers and. I'm not that way. I'm just not that way. I don't have a clue what to say. And so, uh, so Carl really, in a certain sense, is the director of this movie. And, and, and I mean, he took did all the heavy lifting. But I, I just like the, I get a lot of good ideas. And you know, and I, it was nice being able to just, particularly in in pre-production, post-production, to you know have a good idea and you know it's taken and yeah. Well, yeah, and we're so in sync about what we what we want the vision to be, whether it's a play or with this movie. And so we just, you know, we do speak the same language and, and can sort of have each other's backs. And I do, because I, I primarily am a director, I do have that sort of like desire to work with the crew and the cast and, and just really sort of like approach it from outside the painting. And then Charles is sort of like inside the painting, um, but he also can come forward and because he does, he has strokes of brilliance and genius that I can therefore help implement um, to make sure that we're getting uh, what what he wants. And, and yeah, and just like crafting the whole story together and the whole visual idea is, is great. It, it, was, it was a great comfort on this project to sort of, you know, especially since it was such a weird time, but, you know, um, but to have all of those pieces come together was, is really quite gratifying. Yeah. And you have to have a certain amount of sensitivity that I, mean, I think the worst thing would be uh, be in a situation where uh, we each would tell an actor like an opposite thing to do. Or tell a DP that they're, or, or, you know, the director of photography or, or, or the costume person some wildly, you know, di very divergent thing, you know. It was never going to happen because we're so oh. insane. But even there, I, I just think sometimes you just have to back off a little bit. Um, yeah, uh, and um, and then of course, it, what we're making, while we're in production, you know, I would, I, you know, I have the central role in the movie, and so I had to, I had to really just focus on, on acting. It was a complicated part for me and cha challenging, and I had to really focus on that. So I, I yeah, and with a, such a limited schedule, it's also not the type of thing where you could do a take and then go and watch the take because uh, that, that was a you know. That adds that adds hours to your day that you simply don't have. You know, so see when we did very serious a very serious person, um, I was able to look at at the um, playback each for let's say one or two takes. But in this movie, it was so quick and and because of the COVID protocols, tech, literally I couldn't get around to see a monitor, and and I had to just you know rely on on Carl's eye. But you know, Carl's directed me in for so long, yeah. Ten plays or something like that. Who knows how many shows we've done. Carl, as a director, how would you approach differently if it's something you're doing on stage versus on screen? How do you begin to think about it in a different way? Oh, I, you know, it's funny. I just I have a very cinematic imagination. So whether it is a play or or a movie, I just I have an ability in my imagination to imagine how characters will walk through the world. 
And so blocking comes very naturally to me. When I was a little kid, I, I created basically sound stages on a, on a little table with, you know, figures I'd make out of clay and uh, theaters I'd build out of Legos and, and things. So I was always sort of like putting on plays in my imagination and, and sort of trying to recreate um, what I would see either, you know, on, in a play that my parents would take me to see or, or in movies that I would see. So I was always, I've always sort of had, I'm able, I'm able to imagine it, characters in space, which in a, in a film um, is it's interesting how you kind of move a lot less because the camera moves. And so working with Jendra Jarnigan, our, our uh, DP on the movie, being able to say, well, this is what I see. And what if we pull back or what if we, you know, move it this way? And she would have the technical acumen to say, aha, okay, here's the pitfalls of that. Or uh, it, it's really working with the focusing on the camera when you're dealing with um, a movie and then what's the audience seeing in a live theater. So like sight lines become uh, a big concern. And, you know, and if I, if I want Charles center stage, where am I going to put, you know, Nancy Anderson in the scene next so that they're being featured and the appropriate balance for a scene. Um, so it's just sort of imagining characters in space, but in one case it's for a static audience and then with this in a movie it's where's the camera looking. Yeah. And Doug, what is it like for you to be in a rehearsal room with Carl, with his style as a director? We we very rarely, I mean, we didn't really get to rehearse this. Other than I think we had a little Zoom session. We um, are hopefully going to get to do a play uh, that Charles wrote a, a long, long time ago, uh, at some point in the future, somewhere. But, uh, but um I never really got to be, I never really had the privilege of being in a full rehearsal room with Carl other than on set. But I will say this, that there was one moment I, in the movie that I was, that I sort of felt like I wasn't quite getting it. And Carl um, fixed it very quickly in a way that may, that definitely got the job done very quickly. Didn't make me feel like I didn't know what I was doing, but also was expedient. So, that's something that but was. But I was no, I think I know what you mean. And I was just terrible. No. I was no help to you at all. I was just, I was like no, the you, mean you, stepmother. You were in the scene with me. <laughs> oh, I was, you were in the scene with me. I'm a terrible. It at was, that point, I was so, I was so impatient. I was impatient. I was just awful. You were and in the scene. <laughs> even still, oh, I was God. terrible. And so Carl, you know, Carl stepped right in. And then, uh, and then. <laughs> It's true. It's just it's a shut up, shut up, shut up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was yeah. like, it's got a rhythm. Just say it. <laughs> well, I was just terrible. I was like, we could step up. And so at that point, I think Carl said, I think maybe it's best if I direct. Uh, uh, <laughs> let me let me talk to let me talk to the child. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't, uh, but yeah. Charles was Busby Berkeley uh, at that moment. <laughs> I, was, I was Busby Berkeley. But I learned, I, 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 I cooled it after that. Yeah. Utter delight. Yes, yes, yes. Utter delight. But no, my, that was, my, my experience was always that they both, you know, really, it, it just, it seemed like a very smooth, it, you know, I think there's a reason um, Greg Santos, who is someone who I, I think you know, and um, is part of the whole Bush part, Anderson part, operation. Part of the family. Part he's of the, often, he's, was often Carl's assistant director. Well, so. but, but, he ref, but he refers to this 
the Bush and Andrus operation as the firm. And uh, I sort of felt, it, it felt like, oh, they sort of, it, it does. It sort of feels like a, like an operation and it sort of it has a way that it, that it sort of works. And I, you know, I'm the child of two, two business people. So I, you know, I, I, I responded to that. I was like, oh, I sort of get, I understand. So it's just, what is my function in this thing? And I think once that clicked in it, all made sense. And then particularly with, with Julie, who's, you know, um, I guess uh, very important in the, in the firm. And uh, <laughs> we have such a shorthand. Uh, at this point, you know, I've been working with Julie since 1984. And we just have this incredible shorthand to work with. And I mean, sometimes, uh, in, you know, I, I can just say to her, because I know her, her very idiosyncratic voice so well, how she's going to say the line that I, uh, you know, I, I can say to her, oh, you're, you're giving me a, a seven right now. Can you give me a five? And she, and she can adjust it just like that. And it's, it's so in interesting. Just the, sh the shorthand after um, so many years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just wonderful when, uh, you know, this level of talent that we had in this movie, just people come to set with so little time, but what they they give you uh, is so spot on with maybe just an adjustment here or, you know, like maybe enlightening them as to the rhythm they may not know or be aware of, of where, where we're going with the punchline and what we'd like them to do without giving somebody a line reading, but without just, but just sort of like letting them bring themselves because they have to be so you know, so honest for the camera, whether you're being funny or sincere, uh, truthful. And so, you know, it can't really be some sort of put upon, put on thing. Um, so you want to cast really talented and smart actors who, who can just, you know, knock it out of the park immediately when you don't have a couple of weeks yes, to we really to, work. We, we don't something. have to teach Dehody how to play a sophisticated, elegant woman or actually <laughs> play an imposing you know, figure of authority. Yeah, they, they they bring so much more to the table with their the, the color the the colors they can paint with and their palette that it's uh, it's very exciting and you just wish you had more time just do more takes you know <laughs> move your camera try it another way but you know you don't always have that that time. We we you haven't even mentioned it, Tim. Our leading man in the movies, Tim Daly. Oh, Tim Daly, fabulous Tim Daly. It was so yeah. much fun and so collaborative and questions and ideas that were all just made made the movies better, you know? His part, his part being kind of the leading man, romantic lead, was a, a bit underdeveloped. And he had just really smart ideas. That's, that's you know, it gets, who if you're dealing with a star, you know, if they have bad ideas, you have to be very careful about not wanting them to feel that they're being disrespected. You know, and you have to somehow get around, you know, the, some terrible idea. And to, but in this case, so we were so lucky that, that each idea Tim had was so good uh, that it, they made each scene better. Strengthened strengthen the character and the gave, you know, just gave him colors that, uh, you know, he had the imagination to bring to us and say, what do you think? And we're like, I think that's great. You know, <laughs> his, um, he improved. Yeah. The writing, but gave, giving just saying, what about this or that? And, it was, uh, and that's where the collaboration is fun as both director and writer is that you just like, 
he's making it better. He's making, he's improving it. He's, he's yeah. tweaking it. He's having fun with it in a, in a great way. That's collaborative and, and building on what's there. And, uh, you know, we welcome that sort of. It was kind of embarrassing though. One day um, I did a scene with Tim and it was just so, it was just exciting. I just, he's so real and present. And, uh, and so then we were uh, going into, getting into the van to go back to the hotel. And uh, I saw Julie, I think Julie and Margaret show, I don't know if we were you there too. I was not there that day. Uh, we're in the, in the back seat and I got in and I just started saying, oh my God, I tell you that Tim Daly is just the most wonderful actor. It was just so thrilling to play that scene with him today. And Julie says, darling, he's sitting in the front seat. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, could have gone a very different way. <laughs> Were any of the characters in this film based on the real people you knew in the world of movie memorabilia? Like I know, of course, the name Gerald Bauman is very similar to Gerald Boardman, the historian. Oh, I don't know that. I don't know who, who's that. I don't know who is Gerald Boardman. Oh, well, he's actually written a few books about the theater. Like yeah, no, no, no. all characters depicted in this film are fictional. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and bear no resemblance to any other human uh, living or deceased. Uh, the, the, the dead man in the, who's never seen the movie has elements of about four different yeah. uh, elderly friends of mine who, who died. So composites. So yeah, there's definitely a, composite. Like anybody, basically all of our sort of people like that are based on a little piece of this, a little piece of that, little memories, little bits of stories of people that Charles has introdu introduced me to, you know, in years past. And, you know, and just like we remember a funny anecdote or some little quality to sort of develop uh, our own personage as opposed to a specific person. Yeah, so there are elements, but nobody's specifically... Um, based on one person. And other than COVID, what has made this, the experience of this movie different from the other movies that you've worked on? Well, um, just the, the, I think we've touched on it a bit, but just the uh, lack of, of being quite social with, with people, which, which is unfortunate because that, that is part of the fun of um, being Yeah, movie. like, you know, to edit the film and to score the film, we've done it all over Zoom. You know, everything has been over Zoom. So uh, it's peculiar because usually you'd be in a room with your editor talking and you'd be there for hours and and there's something kinetic about that. And just some, you know, we're all just little in little boxes like this, but you, we managed to do it. And But it's the same thing with the music department, the sound department, the coloring, the colors department. When we were doing the color, Charles and I actually did go into a, a, a studio with the director of photography, but the colorist was at his apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, but yeah, we were doing the work in real time. It's just, he was streaming to us and we were socially distanced in this big room, masked and everything. And uh, but so it's, it, it's peculiar because you're not, you don't have that feeling of being all together. Yeah. Well, I think also on a, in, a, in, a, in a positive light, I mean, I think one of the things that I think was, for me different than a lot of the other things that I've gotten to do before is that a story that is, as, um, as was referenced earlier, it's about, you know, it's with a lot, a lot of seasoned, seasoned actors and seasoned performers, but it's not about them being, being of a certain age. So you get to, you, you really get the best of everything, which is that you get that experience and that really old school comic sensibility, which, you know, I think, 
so from a personal perspective, to watch Charles and Julie's relationship. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, I did sort of feel like, you know, oh, well, here I am back, you know, I feel like I'm sort of sitting in, in you know, 1985, you know, at the Limbo Lounge, watch, you know, watching and sort of even occasionally getting to interject into their, into yeah. their world. And I think that, you know, that was amazing. And I, and I just think a movie that really features, you know, you know, Charles and Carl both talk about this a lot, but people doing their trip, which is their thing. Like no one in this movie is doing something that I think is so outside of, outside of like their innate wheelhouse that it just seems so all these people, basically what I'm saying is I think everybody's perfectly cast. <laughs> so uh, and yeah, thank you, yeah. Mary Krasner, for that. So, uh, yeah, that's true. But, you know. Were there any cut scenes from this movie? No, <laughs> we no, we it's such a streamlined story that just sort of builds, builds, builds. In fact, the the, the original uh, rough cut was about twenty five minutes too long. Like we were like, we gotta cut twenty minutes. Like we gotta find, but there wasn't like a plot that we could cut. There weren't like scenes that we could cut. So we had to just sort of go in and find places where maybe the edit was too long or can we can we tri- you know can we buy time that way and there were a couple scenes that we found dialogue that we could eliminate you know because it was like something was just going on too long it wasn't moving forward especially in the beginning of the movie we really needed to go boom 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 and our dp pointed out to us that the opening scene was very much like a, a play and that one scene with two people talking had a, spoke about too many things, too many elements, where in a movie, a scene is really about one thing. And we thought, oh, that's so interesting. We, and basically everywhere else in the movie, we really lived into that. But in the beginning, we were setting up a few too many things. And so we had to see, was there anything we could sacrifice? And if we did, how would it uh, affect something on down the line and it took several passes through the editing to for you know two sort of key scenes to find a, a way to keep them intact but like cut away the chaff with the footage that we had and with the takes that we found acceptable to use so that was that was really getting into minutia and really maybe finding ways of like well what if we take that line that was the in the middle of the scene can we make that the end of the scene because it works better as a cap if we have to eliminate these three sentences in the earlier section so we find ourselves getting really down into into that mode once we managed to get it down and we did end up cutting those 25 minutes yeah and it's it's frustrating at times where there's something that we spent uh precious time on shooting yeah and then we end up cutting yeah Anything? Oh, gee, I wish we. I wish we had that hour back. We could have used it uh, later in the day. Oh, there's a famous story about the on the, the bonfire, the vanities, um, where a character dies, and there's all this farce that went on, and they spent hours and hours and hours filming all of it, and none of it ended up in the movie. It's just Alan King dies, and that's it. Yeah. But there was all of this farce that they spent hours and hours and hours redoing. That's about it, but and there's a, never makes it into the movie. Yeah, and there, there are elements like Charles was talking about where we had ideas for shots that would evoke uh, you know, famous shots in, in movie history that we thought would be fun Easter eggs for the audience, for them that know, they would love it. And then ultimately the shot just, you know, kind of didn't work in, in the context of the scene. 
And so we had to we had to eliminate those for you know various reasons. But it was like that's that's too bad because that took an hour. <laughs> and we were time was such a um, problem with this movie because yeah we were shooting it so quickly yeah so it, it just and 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 we shot we got everything done but every day toward the end of the long day the the nerve the anxiety of uh, are we going to be actually able to finish our work for the day working and we always there was no wiggle room there was no extra time and there was one there was one day where we got you know things took a, took longer than we you know needed them to for various very acceptable reasons but then uh, we were worried about one sequence where um, the set had to be demolished, but it couldn't be taken down until we knew that we had the coverage. And there was concern from uh, the editor that we didn't have enough coverage for this one sequence that we had just spent a lot of time. And if we needed to do reshoots, we'd have to do it on the last day we were at the studio. And that was a packed day that ended up, you know, we, we used every second of that day. We didn't have extra time. And so we actually asked the editor to do a rough assembly of it to see if he had enough uh, footage to do, because if we did, we were gonna be in big trouble. Fortunately, we did. We did not have to go back and redo that. Although I think Charles, the DP and I, wish that we could have, <laughs> but it would have just been so, uh, it would have been practically impossible with our timing. Yeah to go back and fix that. So we, we were lucky that we didn't have to. And so to bring us to what's happening in the present day, how did Outfest happen as the first venue for the movie to be shown? Our producers submitted it. It's a, it's a very prestigious festival and, uh, and they wanted us. Um, they, they accepted it and they, uh, they were uh, very, uh, they knew Ash Christian. And so they were curious about this project that he had been involved in. And so uh, they liked the movie, they liked the connection to him and they invited us to premiere it in a very uh, lovely spot and time, time frame. Um, so it was just, you know, really, really nice how that worked out. It'll be interesting too, because we, we've actually never heard it with an audience. It's yeah. different from, um, from a theater. And so it's a, it's a bit scary, but people who've seen the movie all seem to like it. So uh, but we, we haven't heard it with a, a collective audience yet. Yeah. So where the laughs are. But nothing we can do about it. Nothing we can do about it now. <laughs> We're no test screens. <laughs> and what do you hope to do with the movie in the future in terms of a theater release or streaming or all of that? I think the hope is to find a, a good distributor who will give the movie its its really true true life. It's very tricky today. With uh, it keeps getting more and more complicated. It was hard enough pre-COVID as far as where indie films find their audience. And now it's even more tricky of what, 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 what is it that you're looking for? What are, what is your hope? It's, it's, it changes. Um, yeah, for, 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 for uh, you know, in-person screenings for, and then streaming and, and the streaming platforms and, and who, where the movie will be a fit. So it all remains to be seen, but we, we really are, our high hope is that we, we get the opportunity for a lot of people to see this movie because it's fun. And, and I think we could, everybody just would like to have some fun. So I think yeah, it's- Yeah, we've got the feeling from people from the very beginning. I think a lot of, we, People wanted to, to jump aboard. I guess they hadn't read too many scripts lately that were um, 
of comedies that have a, a verbal quotient to them and uh, and that had a lot of heart and and, deserve, and, and plot. We're so, you know, just in interviewing people to be in it and to work on it, just that they had that response. They were like, this is just fun. And I want to work on this fun project. And that, that was, that was heartwarming to both of us. And then, you know, as we've been able to share the movie with various people in advance of, of uh, it premiering, uh, they've had a great time. And, and that's, that's very meaningful to it's us as well. So we hope to share it with a wider audience and have that opportunity. What that, what form that will take, it's, it remains to be seen. And it is a movie. It is a movie about people with the love for film. It's a celebration of the love of cinema, and I and I think um, that should reverberate with, with a lot of people. Yeah. And the last question I'd love to ask all of you is what's coming up next professionally, either separately or together. I know Charles, you have your memoir and. <laughs> oh, my memoirs, my memoirs. Yes, I don't. I, my whole life is about, about waiting, 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 waiting. So, uh, yeah, my my book, I fi finally fi finished it. Oh, nothing's ever really finished. And now we'll see if we can find a, the right home for that as well. Yeah, all about that. And Charles and I are working on a, a, a another screenplay because we like we just want we just want to go back to the set. We just want to make another movie. So we're we're sort of developing a new idea uh, as far as that goes. And then, you know, for, for me, it's just, you know, like waiting to see what happens with the theater also, about what, what comes back and, and, and what projects can, you know, carry forward. forward. So again, it's, it's still waiting, <laughs> more waiting, as Charles said. Show business, show business or creative life, let's say. It's all yeah. about waiting. So it's, it's all an exercise in patience. <laughs> and how you fill in the time while you're waiting and doug you just keep uh, putting yourself on tape yeah no time. it's all you know all i get audition auditions for things that come along that, that i get asked to audition for and waiting again same thing. <laughs> I, I don't know how actors do it I, you know i don't pursue a uh, acting career outside of my own work and recently i uh, was asked to uh put myself on tape for some TV for a TV show, and oh, I just thought it was so such an agony, and I carried on. So you would have thought that I was, you know, auditioning for the role of Scarlett O'Hara. You know, I just was all <laughs> oh, the Sturm and Drang, and I, I involving so many people to to help me with this little uh, two minute tape, and 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 I didn't get the part. You know? yeah. <laughs> and then the, then the cruel thing was that. Uh, so after all I went through to put this tape together, and they really were very nice, you know, the casting people, but I, I didn't think I really was completely right for the part either. Anyway, I, I, uh, my windows look out on in the West Village on Appington Square, and I look out the window one morning and they're shooting the, not, not only the TV series, but they're shooting the actual scene that <laughs> I had auditioned for. <laughs> with the actor who, who got the part, who was much better for it. But I mean, I thought that was just a cruel actor's nightmare. Just, to, I couldn't escape it. I mean, there, you know, yeah. I think that scene was in the paper because that, that guy, yes. he was like spotted. Well, John Waters got the part. John, it was the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And John Waters got the part and he was much more appropriate for it than I would have been. But it, it just was awfully cruel seeing it right below my window. I could have poured a, you know, bottle of water on them yeah but i didn't yeah. <laughs>
Well, thank you all so much for doing this. It's been wonderful. Well, it's lovely speaking with you, Charles. Thank you for this opportunity. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time after you've screened The Sixth Reel for my interview with star of stage and screen, Nancy Dussault. She was Tony-nominated for her performances on Broadway in Bajor and Doremi, and she also replaced in the starring roles of Into the Woods and The Sound of Music and in Side by Side by Sondheim in their original productions. She starred on tour in The Sisters Rosenzweig, in Carousel and Finian's Rainbow at City Center, in Street Scene and The Cradle Will Rock at the City Opera, and Candide and Sunday in the Park with George in Los Angeles, among many others. You may remember her on screen as Muriel Rush in the hit sitcom Too Close for Comfort, Carol Cornpet in 1979's The In-Laws, or as Carol Davis on the new Dick Van Dyke show. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.